Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not, you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Father God, you in your grace create an environment for us to encounter you, to know you, to meet with you. And it's possible within that environment of grace to uh, talk about hard things, to um, tackle difficult topics. So Lord, I pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts as we search the scriptures to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jay is, uh, along with Amy, in the Holy Land. And just before the service, I got a text from him saying that they worshiped this morning at St. George's Anglican Cathedral in Jerusalem. So I fear Jay may never be coming back, if that's the that's the case. Um, As long as they have fountain pen ink in Israel, I think he could be a happy man. But I'm happy to be with you guys tonight and uh, to tackle the three topics that you're not going to talk about at your Thanksgiving table, which is religion, politics, and money, right? So we're just going to go straight for it because Jesus talks about it, and uh, we need to talk about it too. It's interesting, this moment that Jesus finds himself in Um, where there's a group of people that want to entangle him in his words. And I love that phrase, that they plotted against him to entangle him in his words. Um, He's in a moment where if he says the wrong thing, he's going to offend one group. And if he says another wrong thing, he's going to offend another group. It sounds like the kind of times that we live in now, right? Is that if someone says the wrong thing in the wrong time, in the wrong place to the wrong people, and that gets caught, then it becomes a meme and is perpetuated infinitely through uh, the World Wide Web, and a gaffe can become the end of someone's career, right? Somebody says the wrong thing, and they're hamstrung. And Jesus is in a moment like that. It's a high-stakes moment in a high-stakes place. Um, This conversation takes place within the context of Holy Week. So the sequence of days and events um, and plotting that happens from... um, what is that day called? Palm Sunday, all the way through Easter Sunday. So Jesus has come into Jerusalem riding on the colt as, as a king. He's taking on the, the symbolism, the garb of a king. He's come into Jerusalem, and people are wondering what he's going to do. Is he going to try to overthrow the government? What is happening? It's a high-pressure week because it's the week of the Passover, so there's a lot of people in Jerusalem. And you have these different competing political groups. And Jesus has done this other crazy thing, which is cleanse the temple, He's gone into the temple and overthrown the tables of the money changers and said, you've, made, you've defiled this place. This is a place for prayer, and you've, you've turned it into something else. And then Jesus keeps telling these stories, these parables about people who kill God's messengers. And the Pharisees and the people around him know that they're talking about him, but he's not saying it in an open way, so they want to catch him in his words. So you have these Pharisees, they're plotting 
And their plot is to align two groups who would never be together otherwise, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Look at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went, and they plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. So the Pharisees send their disciples, and then they send this group of the Herodians. So we know something about the Pharisees. This is this group of people who they emerged in the time of the exile, They emerged in this time in Israel's history where there was um, great pressure to to not be Jewish and to not to do the outwardly Jewish things. So they doubled down on all of that. And at the time that the Pharisees emerged, it was a really good thing because it was the people of God trying to maintain what made them distinctly the people of God. But as Jesus says to the Pharisees over and over and over again, what they've done is take the teachings of man and make them as if they're the teachings of God because they were so scrupulous about the law that they would make laws for the laws for the laws, so to make sure they never got to the line where the law was. So Jesus has conflict after conflict after conflict with the Pharisees because they're talking about, what, well, what does God really require of us? And then the Herodians, they are people who are aligned with the house of Herod, and the house of Herod were those who had the blessing of Rome to rule in the land. So a question about taxes to these two people, these are the two groups you don't want to get this answer wrong with because they're going to hang you with your words, whatever you say. It's a high-pressure moment. It's a high-pressure situation. They want to entrap him. And their first technique before they ask him the question is to butter him up, to attempt to flatter Jesus, to get him to slip, to say something he wouldn't say otherwise. They say, teacher, we know that you are true. And we know that you teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. They're buttering him up. They're trying to get him to say something he wouldn't say otherwise. And then they package within that flattery their question. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now that phrase, is it lawful, is a phrase that disciples would ask of a rabbi to get a rabbi's opinion about whether or not something could be done according to the law of Moses. So they're not saying, is it lawful according to the law of the land? Of course it's lawful to the law of the land. The law of the land is Rome's law. So they're asking about something else. Is it lawful according to Moses, according to the teaching of our ancestors, to pay this tax? Now, why 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 would taxes be controversial? Well, it's because of to whom it's being paid and to, with what you are paying the tax. So it's, it's potentially offensive to pay taxes to this foreign overlord who's, who's a pagan, who worships false gods, who lifts himself up as a god. And then there's the potential offense of the coin itself, which we'll get into momentarily. And then Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. He's not turned by their flattery. Actually, all the things that they say about him is true. He's not swayed by anybody's opinion, and he doesn't look at things according to their appearance. So he sees through their plot. Verse 18, But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. So he's like, Well, I don't have one of those coins on me. Which coin is that? What coin are you talking about? And then they produce one. So whoever it was that produced the coin certainly feels like it's okay to carry it around in their pocket. Um, but the coin itself is 
the matter of controversy. Because on the coin, it has impressed the image of uh, the, the Caesar, the image of the emperor. So likely this coin, which is the coin of the empire, the, the currency of the empire, would have had the image of Tiberius Caesar on it, who was the uh, emperor at the time, and it would likely have said this, son of the divine Augustus. So basically, Tiberius Caesar, son of God. So you could see why that might be offensive to Jewish people. On the other side, it likely would have said Pontifex Maximus, the high priest. So this is not just a coin that has political ideology stamped on it. It's a coin that has theological ideology stamped on it. Because in Rome and in the ancient world, all of that is tied together. The question of political loyalty and religious loyalty is all tied together. So in a way, if you're a Jew and you've got the Ten Commandments in mind, if that's your minimal knowledge of the law, you might think it's problematic to have this coin because it has the image of a false god on it, which you're not supposed to do, right? No images of false gods. One commentator called this coin a portable idol. It's an idol you could carry around in your pocket, right? Um, So for, for the Pharisees, that's what the coin represents. And for the Herodians, what it represents is their loyalty to, to their overlords so that they can continue to have political power and influence. So you can see the dilemma that Jesus is in, right? So if he says, actually, you shouldn't pay the tax because it's a portable idol. It's an idol to a false god. We don't worship Caesar. We worship the true God. Then the Herodians would have what they need to go say, well, he's an insurrectionist against Rome. And the Pharisees would have what they needed if he said otherwise, because he would basically be supporting blasphemy. Right? He would basically be supporting the worship of false, false God. So I, I doubt that you've ever been put in a situation where you've been answered a question that, where there was more at stake, right? Because he has, he has to get this right. Now, The ironic thing is the end of the story is the Pharisees get him either way, right? Judas betrays him because it is his destiny, it is his vocation, it is the reason why he came to die for our sins. But this is not the moment that that happens. And what he tells us in this moment, what he shows us in this moment, teaches us something about our place in the world as his people. So he asks them for the coin he asks them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And his answer is this famous phrase that you've probably heard used in many different contexts is, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So before we talk about what it is that belongs to Caesar and what it is that belongs to God, we have to talk about this word render because it's probably not a word that you use a lot in everyday speech. Um, it's not like a rendering fat from a you know, dead carcass or something like that. The, the word that sits beneath this has the meaning of give back. So a literal translation would be give back to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's and give back to God the things that are God's. And if you think about that translation, it kind of reframes the whole question, right? Because if there's an assumption that there are things that belong to Caesar that you're giving back to him. And the assumption is that there are things that belong to God that you give back to him. So this is how Jesus answers the question. 
And their response is this, when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Apparently, this is satisfactory for them, at least for them to realize that they weren't going to entrap him with his words. And bundled in, in these words, I think, is an impulse or a directive for us to think through difficult questions related to politics, religion, money, things like that. And I don't think Jesus is giving a hard and fast law. I think it's more like a wisdom statement because different times and places demand different responses for the people of God. The people of God have flourished under any number of governments throughout the last 2,000 years, everything from empires to democracies to oligarchies to whatever archy you can dream up. Christians have been able to flourish to, to remain faithful. So I don't think Jesus is giving us a political theology for all time and all place. He's giving us a, a, a guideline to ask ourselves with whatever moment we tend to find our, happen to find ourselves in, the right question to ask. And the question is, what ought I render to the state and what ought I render to God? What we owe to God doesn't change, right? That's, that's the immovable thing, but what we owe to the state maybe does depending on what time and place, what moment we find ourselves living in. As I was reading this, I came across a quote from Lord Acton. You probably know, if you've heard of Lord Acton, the, uh, the famous phrase, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, he had something to say about this passage that I think is helpful for us. He said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Those words, spoken on his last visit to the temple, three days before his death, gave to the civil power under the protection of conscience a sacredness it had never enjoyed and bounds it had never acknowledged. And they, they were the repudiation of absolutism and the inauguration of freedom. What does all that mean? He says these words provide boundaries for us. They give a certain amount of dignity to the state, but that dignity that is given to the state in Jesus's words are a derived dignity. Whatever power a state has, whatever power a government has, is a derived power that God entrusts to them. That was a Jewish understanding because the Jews lived under many different kinds of governments, many different kinds of empires, and they flourished to varying degrees under those things. There was no one absolute form of government. And their understanding throughout the Old Testament is that whatever power Pharaoh had, or whatever power Nebuchadnezzar had, whatever power the kings of Assyria had, was power that was derived from God. And what Lord Acton is saying is that there is a sacredness that's given to the state because God is entrusting something to them. But there's also a bound. There's boundaries to what the state can demand of us and ask of us. <clears throat> Bounds it had never acknowledged. So there's a little undercut there, right? The state tends not to recognize that its power is derived. The government tends not to recognize that its power is derived. Even in our system, that the power is derived from the people, right? That's what democracy is supposed to be. And yet there's sometimes not an acknowledgement of that bound. But there's this even greater acknowledgement that ought to happen, which doesn't, that every power in every time and every place is derived, that is entrusted from God. 
And then the flip side, what he says, it gives the civil power a certain dignity, but it's under the protection of conscience. And I hope to illustrate that in a minute. He also goes on to say that in those words is a repudiation of absolutism. So it is wrong for Caesar to say that he's God because he's not. It is wrong for Caesar to demand that we worship him. It isn't wrong for Caesar to demand that we pay a tax, but it is wrong for him to call himself God. So Jesus' words repudiate absolutism. So what are examples of this? What positive pictures of if this is a wisdom statement, if this isn't an absolute rule, if, if Jesus is giving us some guidelines to orient ourselves in time and place that we find ourselves, what are some examples that we can look to? And one of the things that came to mind to me was the book of Daniel, is giving a sequence of positive examples of people rendering to their Caesar the things that belong to that Caesar and rendering to God the things that belong to God. One of the things that Jesus will say later on in Matthew is he's about to get asked about the resurrection, and in the same chapter is going to be asked about what the greatest commandment is. What is that? It's kind of an answer to the question, what, what do we render to God? You shall love the Lord your God with all your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's an absolute claim on our allegiance. So when that allegiance comes into conflict with another allegiance, then our conscience is bound to do what? Well, to render to God what is rendered to God. And that's exactly what happens in the book of Daniel. You have these youths of Israel, the, the, the best and the brightest of Israel, Daniel and his three friends, whom we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are taken to Babylon and they are trained um, and educated in all of the things that Babylon had to offer. So that would have been astrology and all sorts of... Basically, Daniel becomes the chief wizard of ba Babylon, if you want to put it that way, and yet remains faithful to God. Think about that for a minute, that that's possible. But in the first chapter, he's taken into the court of the king, and he's offered the fare, the food of the, king, the king's table. And Daniel refuses it. He says, it would be an offense to my God and to our customs for me to eat this. And the attendant's like, yeah, but if you don't, I'm going to get in trouble, right? It's my head if you don't eat it. So Daniel, in a winsome way, puts a simple test before, before, the, before the attendant and says, I tell you what, for 10 days, give me and my friends only vegetables. And then at the end of the 10 days, you'll compare how we look to how they look. So he's giving this guy a winsome way to do the thing that Daniel in his conscience needs to do, which is not eat the things he's not supposed to eat. And lo and behold, God is with him, blesses him, and this diet turns out to, you know, elevate Daniel's profile, but also he's healthier, and he is able in that moment to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to render to God the things that are God's. That's this gives us this picture of a, there's ways to interact in these moments that are winsome. It doesn't always have to be combative. It doesn't always have to be my ideas versus your ideas. Where's the friction point? It can be, hey, how about this? Have you ever thought about this? Why don't we try this in a non-absolute way? 
The second picture in the book of Daniel is with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the famous story. They are, there is a golden idol to Nebuchadnezzar. This is about as clear as it gets, right? Here's something to worship, and you must. If you are loyal to the state, if you are loyal to Nebuchadnezzar, you will bow down and worship this image. And they say, no, thank you. Because in that moment, it isn't possible to simultaneously render to Nebuchadnezzar what is Nebuchadnezzar's because worship does not belong to Nebuchadnezzar. It belongs to the Lord. And they understand that dynamic. They understand that they cannot, in good conscience, bow down to an idol. And they are thrown into a fiery pit and they are delivered from it. The third picture is Daniel himself. After Nebuchadnezzar has gone, there's another king, Darius. Daniel is, is in this elevated place and there's these other governors around him and they don't like Daniel. They don't like the success that he has. They don't like that he's a foreigner. They don't like that he has influence when he's part of this you know, oppressed people. So they seek to entrap him, much like the Pharisees sought to entrap Jesus. And what do they do? They go to Darius and they say, you know what would be great? If people only prayed to you. Because you're, you're this divine, amazing king, and you, know, you really deserve a lot more. You know what you should do, Darius? You should sign an edict that if anybody prays to any other god for the next 30 days, they'll be thrown into a lion's den. And Darius says, sounds great to me, and signs the edict. But Daniel is a faithful Jew. He's a faithful man of God. He is not going to have his conscience bound by the state to not pray. So he still prays in broad daylight. He opens his windows, he does his prayers, and these guys are like, come to Darius and like, can you believe it? That Daniel guy, he did not follow your edict. Shucks, I guess you're going to have to throw him in the lion's den, which is what happens. And God delivers him from that. So we have these three pictures in the book of Daniel of moments when this is what the state requires, this is what the power requires, this is what the government requires, and it comes into conflict of what is owed God. Jesus recognizes that that dynamic is at play. He's not saying that Caesar can't overstep his bounds at certain points. And that will certainly happen to the church in their history with the Roman Empire when there's persecutions and all those sort of things. But Jesus is saying there is a way to navigate our relationship with the powers that be, and it isn't running away. It isn't hiding and pretending like we're not there. There's real interaction. And Daniel and his friends give us a picture of what that might look like. And to be honest with you, I picked the Daniel example because I don't really know what it looks like for us. It's really hard. I, I racked my brain. I thought about it, prayed about it. I don't know what it looks like because I don't work in the same places that you do and I don't have the same influence that you do and I don't have the same relationships that you do. And that's why I think it's a wisdom statement that Jesus gives us. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God. It's a rule of thumb. It's something to take with us when we're in those moments when something impinges upon our conscience and we can ask that question. See, Jesus' answer to the Pharisees, it, it turns away their wrath in the moment, but when they went home and talked about it, they would see that answer as complete compromise. 
Jesus is advocating compromise. Uh, the Herodians, it would be nonsensical to them because they wouldn't divide those two things. If they were religious at all, they wouldn't divide those two things. So we're going to go into the world and we're going to have conversations with people to where what Jesus has to say, render to Caesar and render to God, is nonsense because they've made an absolute allegiance to one side or another. So we go forth in wisdom with the opportunity to show that there are ways out of false dichotomies, right? Because the Herodian-Pharisee dichotomy is a false dichotomy. Jesus says, no, I don't have to answer yes or no. It isn't a yes or no question. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God's. So what I know is, is that we live in a very complicated time in a very complicated place where the stakes are high. Stakes are really high. And the church needs this, this wisdom. We need to walk in this wisdom. And it, and it occurs to me, the thing that we say at the end of every service, service is that we go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. And that struck me anew as I was, I was thinking about this, praying about this, is that we don't just go forth into the world, into these potentially hot, conflicted spaces just with the power of the Spirit. We go rejoicing in the power of the Spirit because God has given us His power, His presence, His person to lead us and to guide us. One of the Holy Spirit's ministries, Jesus says, is that He will lead us into all truth. He will guide us into all wisdom. The book of James says that he who lacks wisdom simply ask. I think that we live in a moment where one of the greatest gifts that the church can give the world is for us to be wise people. One of those other great statements of Jesus, let us be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. What would it be like if the church was known as people who were wise as serpents and innocent as doves? Not one or the other, but both. We've had plenty of the church being wise as serpents but not innocent as doves. And we had plenty of the church being innocent as doves, completely detached. We're not going to get our hands dirty. We're not going to have the conversation. We're just going to put our heads down and pray. And Jesus doesn't leave really those options open for us. He says there's, it's not a yes or no question. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God. So for you, as you take this, the encouragement that I would have for you is just to meditate on in your own life, in your own context, what, what are the things that we render to Caesar and what are the things that we render to God? And what does it look like in your job, in your relationships, in your spheres of influence to be wise as a serpent and to be as innocent as a dove? And what does it look like in your relationships, in your context, in your places of work, in your spheres of influence to go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that Jesus is unafraid to to tackle difficult subjects, and we thank you, Lord, for his wisdom. We thank you that his wisdom surpasses Solomon of anyone who's ever lived. And Lord, we want to be wise. 
as the book of James says, that we simply must ask for your wisdom and you'll give it. So, Lord, I ask for the gift of wisdom for myself. I ask for the gift of wisdom for the people of All Saints East Dallas. That your spirit would fill us with wisdom so that we could go forth in that spirit, rejoicing in the power that you give us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.